Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. Episode 94 today, folks. Kind of hard to believe. We're actually at the two-year mark of this show, too. May 14th, 2020 was my very first episode with Scott Foley. It's hard to think back to that time. Scott was coming off of a shoot in Chicago that had gotten shut down because of COVID early in the pandemic, and he ended up having to come home and just figure out where entertainment and media went from there. I was in the same boat. I had lost my job about uh, two months earlier and was trying to figure out my next chapter. And none of us really knew where we were headed. Remember in those early shows, too, marking deaths in the tens of thousands. You know, every couple of weeks, it would be, okay, we're at 40,000 deaths, we're at 50,000 deaths, 60,000, whatever it was. It was always under 100, as I recall, back then. Now we're passing the 1 million mark of deaths in this country. And I, I can't get my mind around all of it. There's so much loss, so much devastation, but it's also starting to feel normalized too. And I don't quite know how I feel about that, getting back out into the world and just living life again. I've compared COVID in the past to being like in a rainstorm and having to wait for the storm to clear before you're safe to go outside. And it's definitely still raining and uh, the winds are still blowing, but we seem to be paying less attention. And uh, it's a delicate balance that we're all trying to figure out right now. And I've also just been trying to figure out the next chapter for this show. And I think there's more to talk about now than just how we move forward in the entertainment industry. That is my world. That's what I know. That's what I love. But I'm also thinking bigger picture. Have the last two years changed our perception of things? So definition of home different? Mine sure is. What about family? Work? And I think part of that is food, too. Elizabeth Almeida is my guest today. And this is a show that has been kind of in the back of my head for like six months or so. I said I would love to interview her, but maybe it's too weird. Maybe this has nothing to do with the premise of my show. You know, this is a show primarily for actors and directors and producers and people like that to talk about our industry. Is there a place for food? And I've started experimenting with writing about food more in my newsletter. If you're not already on that list, go to heathrasala.com and enter your email address to uh, get the newsletter once a week in your inbox. I've been talking a lot more about food in there. I've had a lot of guests that have talked to me about food too. Nick Offerman, he and I started talking about acting and TV shows, and then quickly took a hard left turn into food production, which was awesome. Lydia Bastianich and I talked a lot about canning and preserving food. I talked to filmmaker Diana Rogers about meat and sustainable meat. And now today I'm talking to Elizabeth Almeida. She's a friend of mine. We know each other through social media. She's a neighbor of mine. She lives pretty close to me. And she's also my mushroom farmer. Elizabeth is the founder and owner of Fat Moon Mushrooms. It's a local farm here in eastern Massachusetts. She grows certified organic mushrooms, sells them to restaurants, sells them at local farm stands, at independent grocery stores, places like that. They are some of the best mushrooms I've ever eaten. They are insane. I buy a lot of them every week from my local farms. But the reason I thought Elizabeth might be a fit for this podcast is that she has just been really creative about growing her business and getting attention for it and getting people to understand what she's about and engage with her product. 
She's very active on social media at Fat Moon Mushrooms. I interact with her on Instagram. She posts educational content for people. She talks about other local farmers. I really admire the role that Elizabeth plays within our local food system. Her business is very specific to here in the Boston area, but a lot of her lessons are also very broad and uh, speak to things that are happening around the country. And I think it's a good time for all of us to reassess where we want to spend our money and how we want to spend that money. Hopefully, after hearing this conversation with Elizabeth, you'll think more about where your food comes from. Here it is, my conversation with Elizabeth Almeida. So I want to start with just kind of the big picture question of the last two years. What has this whole pandemic period been like for you? It's been great for my business. But if we go back to the very beginning days, it was, you know, frightening. Yeah. You know, in one weekend, I lost about 75% of my business because I had been primarily selling to restaurants Uh before the pandemic. And that was about 75% of my business. So overnight, you know, all that disappeared. And I tell folks that, for, you know, 24 hours, I thought about crawling in bed and pulling the covers over my head and, yeah, you know, until this was over. But then I quickly regrouped and thought people still need to eat. So I can, I know I can grow food. And, you know, at that point, there were frightening pictures of grocery store shelves. Yeah. Everyone was panic buying. People were panic buying. And, you know, it's frightening to think about living in a community that doesn't have enough food. Yeah. Like that is, you know, primal fear, right? So I thought I can grow food. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to get it to people, but I know I need to keep growing. And fortunately, I had worked with quite a few farm stands before. That was just a smaller part of my business. But in March of 2020, those farm stands couldn't keep up with demand. And of course, that was before their season had really started. So they didn't have much. Even farms that have robust storage facilities didn't have much left by the spring. So I was able to quickly pivot from restaurant sales over to retail sales. And I already knew how to package for retail. Some other mushroom farms hadn't had the experience of selling to retail before. So even knowing what kind of packaging, where to buy it, you know, that takes time to figure out. I did have a week early on that I bought a two-year supply of packaging. Oh, wow. (laughs) Just to be safe and make sure you- Because I was hearing there might be disruption in the plastics market. And, you know, it was a a panic buy. Yeah. But I knew it was something that I would eventually use up and and I have. But yeah, I did, you know, a week into the pandemic, I did call one of my suppliers and just go fill my van. Yeah. But there's still disruptions going on in that supply chain right now. One type of cardboard packaging I use, you know, was recently backordered for six weeks. Wow. So I am still buying ahead and hoarding packaging because for my business, I would hate to be caught in a place where I can grow mushrooms, but I don't have a way to package them to get them out to the consumer. So still navigating some of that. Yeah, no, totally. I, I feel like that has been kind of one of the the big things that's come out of this time, at least for me, is just the interconnectivity of everything. And that like, even though you're a mushroom farmer in the Boston area and have this great distribution network in the Boston area, you're still reliant on all these kind of world trade dynamics of just, you know, did this plastic make it in from this place and can it get shipped to here? And what are the logistics of all like? It's it's hard to cut yourself out entirely from that kind of global system. Definitely. And even if your supplier has what you want, then shipping right. becomes a huge issue. And yeah. so in the past year, I, or the past two years, I can't tell you how many times I've had disruptions in my business because of shipping. Right. And, you know, I start to get upset with the shipping company and then they're like, people keep calling out like they're having either 
the same trouble hiring right. as every other employer or with COVID, they don't know, you know, any given day who yeah. might be calling out. And it, if it happens to be the driver on your route that doesn't arrive at the warehouse at 5 a.m. that morning to pick up his loaded truck, you might be out of luck for a couple of days. Yeah. You know, we, we do things of trying to accumulate some extra supplies to mitigate some of that, but there's a limit to how, you know, how far ahead you can buy when you're working with a perishable product. Right. You know, we need a, you know, steady supplies coming in in order to keep up with production. Right. Right. Um, going back to what you were saying at kind of the beginning of the pandemic of that, like 75% sales to restaurants over the last two years, how has that equation flipped for your business? So the restaurants are coming back. It's changed. You know, some of our restaurants are still definitely struggling. Some haven't come back at all yet. You know, they may be open, but they're not back to their full capacity and menu that they used to have. However, we've had other opportunities um, open up during the pandemic. We've started working with Costa, one of the local distributors, uh-huh. and that goes to a number of restaurants. So they are now able to sell more re- more mushrooms for us every week. I was working on that before the pandemic. That took two or three years to jump through all the hoops for food safety regulations in order to work with a bigger distributor. And then there's been growth in the businesses that are doing home delivery. Oh, sure. So two in particular, you know, that are terrific customers and partners for us. One is Family Dinner in Somerville. Okay. They offer what I would call a curated CSA. Yeah. They're not growing anything, but every week you can sign up for a share that includes between four and eight produce items. They include maybe two bread or pastry items, one or two proteins. You know, they're curating this food, you know, not just produce, but other yeah. locally grown and it's or all locally local. prepared foods. Oh, that's awesome. all local. Very cool. All local. So the owner of that business, Erin, has been fantastic. You know, she's committed to her business to feed folks, but also on the other end, very committed to suppliers like myself Yeah, and thinking about how do we improve this whole food system to help small businesses. And you really, I, I see it as really strengthening our local food system. The more diverse our food system is, the more it can be localized, the more resilient it is. So that when we have a pandemic, if we don't have to ship things quite as far, we're not dependent on, you know, that piece of the puzzle. Right. So she's been fantastic. And then there have been companies such as Wico. They do home delivery of restaurant quality meals. They've been fantastic. And again, really supporting local producers and they've become a big partner for us. One of the stories I wanted to share today, Heath, was an experience I had in college. And I was thinking about the title of the podcast, Quarantine Creatives. Sure. And I took a graduate class in information systems. Okay. And the professor shared the story that has stuck with me you know, for 20 years now that was very apt during the um, pandemic. He had spoken to the architect of the building where the business school was at Case Western Reserve, Frank Gary. Oh, sure. And yeah. asked him, he asked him, he said, how do you stay creative? Yeah. Like, what do you do to exercise that muscle? And so Frank's response was, sometimes I take an old project and I put a limitation on it and try to rework it and try to create it again. And so I think about that often, you know, I think about it with our food system, right? Like if we put a limitation on it, what's the creative response to continue feeding people and to maybe come up with something better. And that's really what I've been seeing during the pandemic. The folks I work with who are deeply committed to the local food system, you know, digging deep for creativity, you know, how do we build, you know, new relationships? How do we help each other out? You know, everybody looking for whatever resources they have that they can offer to someone else, maybe lighten someone else's load, knowing that we're dependent right. on each other to make this food system work. That's awesome. I, I love that Gary lesson because I think how he said it is like putting an artificial 
restraint on yourself to mm-hmm. just, okay, what if I don't have five stories? What if I have four? Or, you know, right. what if it has to be cantilevered this way? Just, you know, he's putting some sort of arbitrary thing on it to make him creative. And obviously his works are, I don't know how, how much the listeners know, but, you know, the Walt Disney Concert Center in Los Angeles or here in Boston, the Stata Center at MIT, like they're these crazy, funky buildings, you know? But <laughs> right. what, But I think what you're saying too is that when the world puts these constraints on you, a pandemic or a distribution issue or budget or, you know, whatever it is, the the people that are going to survive and thrive are the ones that can figure out how to kind of get around that obstacle, right? Right, definitely. And I think that's what we've seen a lot of. My experience has been a whole lot of grace and <laughs> understanding, yeah. you know, from a lot of customers. And even this past week, we had something, you know, go wrong at work. And the customer that was affected was like, Hey, it happens. This is, right. you know, this is the time that we're living in and we're all doing the best we can. And you don't know what's going to happen that day. What day you're going to wake up and find out one or more of your staff members can't come in for two weeks. And then what do you do? Yeah. So I've experienced a lot of grace and compassion through the pandemic as well as everybody's trying to remind themselves that we need more of that if we're all going to make it through. Yeah. And and that things aren't as urgent as we often think they are. I think, you know, two years ago, there was this need to kind of rush and just like, okay, where is it? And, you know, put pressure on each other. And I hope we're all a little more forgiving these days and just, you know, okay, I had this kid thing come up, you know, I need a day or two on that. Okay, that's fine. You know, I had this family thing, this person got sick, you know, whatever it is, everyone's got their own things going. And I feel like we're more understanding of that than like, you know, it used to be, hey, I need this. Where is it? And, you know, if you have to work till midnight to get it done, do it. And now right. I feel like it's okay. That can wait a week if it needs to, right? Right. Because I think probably every single one of us at this point has experienced some quarantine. Oh, sure. You know, either you've had, you know, we've had COVID ourselves or someone close to us or been exposed and had times during the pandemic that we've had to walk away from <laughs> yeah. all our plans, right. you know, just overnight, you know, and now people realize the world goes on. Yeah. You know, even if you if you can't show up for a week. Right. Yeah, a lot of lessons like that. But I, I also think about how our children, like which of these lessons will impact them positively and which, you know, which part of it's I know we have a lot of reasons to worry about our children, but I also wonder if there's some parts of this that will benefit them, that they'll emerge with more resilience in some ways. Yeah, no, definitely. I I wanted to just uh, one thing that kind of stuck. I think it may have been the first time I met you or, or, you know, early on, um, I had come to your house to buy mushrooms early in the pandemic. I think this may have been like you had all this restaurant supply. And <laughs> it might have been the first weekend, media, right? Just like, hey, come come buy mushrooms. You can pick them up in my house. Um, but I remember I pulled in your driveway and you had I don't know, a dozen chickens there that you were raising for meat. Do you remember? You must remember this. They were your chickens. But um, I was just like, it was this switch that had kind of flipped on me that like at a time where, you know, COVID was spreading through slaughterhouses and there was this concern of getting meat. I liked that you had kind of taken that into your own hands and just said, okay, if I can't get my usual protein source from, you know, the grocery store or wherever I get it, I have a yard. I can just raise what I need here, right? <laughs> like, w- talk to me about just sort of like, is that is that a normal thing for you, I guess, to just <laughs> buy a bunch of chickens and, and raise them for meat? Or was that like, where did that kind of come from? It is kind of normal for me in this 
from the standpoint of jumping in, like getting an idea, jumping into it and figuring it out as I go. Uh-huh. But it's it's not a stretch for me from the standpoint of I grew up on a beef cattle farm in the Midwest okay. in rural Ohio. Uh-huh. So my parents still live on the same farm and have probably 50 head of beef cattle. Wow. And we always raised every summer we would raise 200 meat chickens. Actually, uh-huh. it was my my older sister had a little business from the time she was 10 or so raising and selling 200 meat birds every summer. Wow. So I knew that I knew how to process them. Yeah. Although I don't like to process chickens. I knew that if it came to that, I could do it. Yeah. Fortunately, I found a place that could do that part of it for me. But yeah, it was, you know, really that bit of self-reliance. But also we had conversations with our kids, you know, just during the periods of concern about food supply. You know, I felt good that I was growing food. But we would also talk with our kids that, you know, if our neighbor, if we have food and our neighbor, who's a good friend, doesn't have food, yeah, we're going to share our food, right? right? So it was, you know, partly about providing for my family, but also just thinking about my immediate little community. I had no illusion that, you know, I think we end up with 30 chickens. I had no illusion that 30 chickens was <laughs> would be enough to save us if the whole food system crashed. But it still felt like one piece, yeah. you know, one small act that I could take that made me feel that gave me a feeling of a little more control right. over my food, you know, the food that I would have available in the coming year. And then, of course, once I did it, the chicken was delicious. And I was thinking, why am I not doing this every year? <laughs> have you done it since or was that just a 2020 anomaly? That was only a 2020 thing, mostly because I don't love my chicken coop and I want mm. a new chicken coop before I do it again. Okay. But I'm so into the mushroom business right now that I'm not taking on projects like building new chicken coops. <laughs> well, that's part of why I, I wanted to invite you on the show too, was just that like you have this mushroom farm, but it's not, it hasn't been a static thing. Like I feel like I am just seeing <laughs> your product appearing in more and more farmers markets and, you know, uh, smaller grocery stores, independent grocery stores, things like that. Part of it may just be that I'm shopping more locally too, but like I'm very aware when I see your stuff and I think following you through social media, I've gotten connected to a lot of other local businesses just because you happen to to sell there. I, I guess I'm just curious sort of the entrepreneurial spirit within you and sort of where this idea came from to, to start a mushroom farm and just, I, I want to hear the trajectory of it, I guess, of how you've grown to the point that you have. Cause I've been really impressed at it from afar. And I, I kind of wanted to dig into the details <laughs> with you of just like, how did you, How did you build the business into what it is right now? So as I mentioned, I grew up on a farm in the Midwest, so I've known how to grow food. And of course, when I was young, you know, it was the kind of farm where we grew most of our food, livestock and a huge garden and a lot of canning and freezing. And And was that primarily for your family? Um, Like the the garden, it wasn't like a, it wasn't a for sale thing. The the beef were were a product, but. Correct. Correct. The garden was strictly for the family. Cool. So then when we moved, when we ended up in Westford, I wanted to start a business that had to do with food and education. I rented some land and started a small vegetable CSA. And did that for a few years. And then when I was ready to expand, I was looking around for more land. But land is so prohib- the cost of land is so prohibitive sure. here in eastern Massachusetts yeah. to think about an agricultural business. So I gave that up, but I was still thinking that I wanted to have some some I, I still wanted to have my own business. I wanted to be in the food sector. And at that time my kids were still pretty young. So I liked the flexibility of owning my own business. And the really funny part of my story about mushrooms is that I never cared for mushrooms as a food. Oh, really? (laughs) 
Do you now? Have you gotten into them? or Yes, I I ate them for breakfast today. Okay. (laughs) You know, and knowing and understanding the health benefits of mushrooms, I do try to eat them every day because they are so good for you. Yeah. So I didn't really care for mushrooms, but you'll appreciate this. My son was about five at the time. Someone had told me that, you know, to encourage your kids to eat fruits and vegetables, when you go to the grocery store, let them pick anything in the produce section. Yeah. You know, each kid gets to pick one item. Every time I would do this with my son, he would get the biggest package of mushrooms. But I thought, well, I'll still cook them. So I'd like put them whole in spaghetti sauce and make yeah. sure they all ended up on his plate. You know, I would right. cook them and, <laughs> and, you know, pretend to like them. And then that year for Christmas, I bought him one of those little grow kits at Whole Foods. Oh, sure. You know, just, yeah. Actually, you know what? Or... No, ironically, it was from Wegmans, which is a customer I'm courting right now. <laughs> so one of those little boxes, we grew it, harvested a pound of mushrooms. I tore it open, was, you know, dissecting what was inside. And from there, I got on Google and YouTube. And I tell people, you can learn a lot on YouTube when you ask the right questions. Yeah, yeah. And there happened to be two mushroom growers who had competing YouTube channels. Okay. So I would watch all their videos and I'd be looking at, you know, I'd listen to what they say, but I'd also be looking over their shoulder to see how they had their grow room set up, where, you know, where their fans were positioned, how big their fans were, what their workstations looked like. So I learned a lot that way. And then I met Willie Crosby, a grower in, he's not growing anymore, but he was in Western Mass. And he really helped me a lot and taught me a lot, you know, and sped up my learning curve. So all that together, I started growing in my basement, just a greenhouse in my basement. And then I was growing in the woods outside of our house, but I couldn't grow in the winter. Uh-huh. And at that point I had several restaurant customers and I was wanting to grow year round. So from there, I found space in an old mill building. And I've moved indoors, which has given me much better growing conditions to be able to control the temperature and humidity and fresh air year round. And then about a year and a half ago, I made the decision, actually, it, might, it was, I think, right around the pandemic, the start of the pandemic, so maybe two years ago, but before the pandemic, I made a decision to grow the business, uh-huh. you know, to actively look for new customers, improve production, you know, and really invest in it and to see, you know, what I could do in a year or two. So I reached an exciting milestone last September when I was able to hire my first full-time employee. Wow. Her name's Kim. She's terrific at running the business and really running the day-to-day operations. It's taken a lot of that off my mind, which has then freed up space so I can be thinking about how to further expand the business. Yeah. It's been really exciting to, to reach that point where I have the business running and I have more time and capacity to think about expansion. Sure. And what's that timeline from like first growing mushrooms in your basement to having a full-time employee? Like, is that five years? Like how long was? <laughs> yeah, probably five or six years. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I think a lot of people don't realize they see, you know, a beautiful package of mushrooms on the shelf and they don't realize <laughs> just all the hard work and, you know, kind of years that it takes to get to that point. Going back to just thinking about those days when you're growing in your basement or, or in the woods at your house, <laughs> like how did you land your first customers? Like figuring out that there would be a demand for this and sort of convincing them that this the product was, was of a high enough quality and that you could deliver consistently. And just, like I feel like there's so many hurdles to trying to, to get in somewhere, whether it's a restaurant or a food distributor or whatever. Like Talk to me about just landing that first sale. My first restaurant customer was it was fantastic. I mean, the chef took a chance on me. Uh-huh. And honestly, like that's what it was. I've learned that this business, my scale of food business, you know, being very small scale and very local, it's all about relationships with chefs. Right. 
And so I sometimes joke that I don't try very hard on sales because our mushrooms are expensive compared to what you get from the mega mushroom farms from sure. Pennsylvania. But I also know that my quality, when I'm delivering mushrooms that I picked that day or the day before, much better than the quality of mushrooms that have been sitting in a warehouse and then shipped up here um, from Pennsylvania. So I have full confidence in the quality of my mushroom. So I show them to chefs and I feel like they either love them or they don't. Yeah. And if they love them, they recognize the quality and they're willing to pay the price that I need to be able to produce these. And if not, I move on because yeah. I'm not going to try and convince them to replace their $2 white button mushrooms with these, you know, organic gourmet mushrooms. Yeah. And I have found enough chefs around here who appreciate that quality that I'm able to produce and getting to consistent production, you know, took a lot of time. Yeah. And, you know, certainly was a challenge in the beginning, but I realized was essential to land these, you know, bigger accounts with restaurants. Yeah. Well, that's kind of, you know, just thinking about my history with your company and my awareness of it, I guess, you know, I have a CSA at Clark Farm in Carlisle, and I know you provide the mushrooms for their mushroom share. And I remember like two or three years ago, hearing about it and thinking like, that, that sounds nice, but I don't know that I would go <laughs> through, I think it's like six or eight ounces a week that you get. Right. And just thinking like, I don't know that I need that many mushrooms. <laughs> and like now here I am two, three years later. <laughs> I buy more than that in a week and right. they've become almost like, like onions or garlic that just, right. I, I think I used to think of mushrooms as, as something that you had to feature as part of a meal. And now I think about just how to integrate them. As you say, just for breakfast, you could throw them into an omelet or saute them like any kind of stir fry or something that I make. Like they've, they've right. become kind of this essential ingredient. Like, do you hear that from other customers that sort of once they, once they get into your product, like they figure out more ways to use it and just, you know, it sounds like that's, that's been true for yourself even, right? Oh yeah, it has. I mean, this morning I had a one pound cluster of oyster mushrooms that, you know, I brought home yesterday, chopped them up this morning, sauteed them all Yeah. because now when I cook mushrooms, I'll just cook one or two pounds, uh -huh. put them in the fridge. And part of that is knowing the health benefits are significant. So I try to eat, you know, even if it's one or two ounces a day, yeah. I try to make sure I have something with a few mushrooms in it and whatever I'm cooking. There's a concept promoted by the Mushroom Council, which is the National Organization for Mushroom Farmers. They encourage you to be a blenditarian okay. and blend mushrooms with meat. Uh -huh. So if you regularly consume red meat, chicken, you know, to find ways to incorporate mushrooms instead of part of the meat. Okay. And so I use that thinking, you know, if we're having tacos, if I'm making something with ground beef, like tacos or chili, I'll chop up mushrooms really fine yeah. and cook them into the ground beef. And th there's even been research done that shows you need less salt hmm. when you incorporate mushrooms in that way. Yeah. I, you know, I cook them that way. I also serve them as entrees, you know, anything that I'm stir frying, you know, with the CSA veggies, right? You like end up roasting a whole bunch of veggies on sure. the weekend. So I yeah. start throwing mushrooms in, you know, when I'm roasting the, all my CSA veggies on the weekend. Yeah. So yeah. I find ways to serve them every meal. Sadly, my family, my son who used to love mushrooms now claims that he has eaten a lifetime of mushrooms. <laughs> He's probably not wrong. <laughs> probably not. If you calculate how many average pounds of mushrooms people eat, but there's also a statistic from Penn State University that says, if you consume, I think it's 18 grams of mushrooms a day, which is only a few little shiitake. Yeah. 18 grams of mushrooms a day will reduce your risk of cancer by 45%. And 
And that's aggregating a couple dozen long-term health studies. Yeah. So every day my kids kind of begrudgingly eat their 18 grams of mushrooms <laughs> and they'll kind of make a remark about now I have 45% less chance of getting cancer today. <laughs> That's awesome. I kind of don't care what their attitude is. As long as they eat it, then yeah. you know, it becomes it. kind of medicine at that point too, in a way, but, but delicious right. medicine. <laughs> and that that's my hope, right? Like food as medicine, yeah. functional food that, you know, if you eat the right foods, it can really support health and wellness. And so that's, that's part of why I incorporate mushrooms in my diet every day. Sure. I'm curious too, like uh, just variety of mushrooms and you mentioned shiitake there, and I know you grow some yep. other ones that are, that are less common in a supermarket, you know, lion's mane right. and oysters and things like that. For, I, I'm curious, I guess, about why you choose to grow the ones that you do, but then also the different, like when I go into a supermarket, I usually see like the white button mushrooms or portobellos or, you know, I feel like there's a, there's a distinct divide between sort of what is what is mass marketable and what uh, you know like a small grower like yourself produces right so the biggest difference is the way that those mushrooms are grown okay so white button mushrooms portobellas baby bellas cremini all of those are by sporus agaricus okay one type of mushroom that grows on compost in the dark okay it's usually composted animal manure in okay. the dark the mushrooms that the local farms here are growing, especially the oyster and shiitake, those are the two most popular. Those grow on hardwood and they grow in the light. Mm. So you can find oyster mushrooms in the woods here in New England. Okay. And same with lion's mane. Uh -huh. I found lion's mane. Lion's mane is tricky. I've only found it like three times in my life. Wow. But it does grow in the wild here. So these species are adapted for this area and they grow on hardwood. We use hardwood sawdust. So that's, you know, a byproduct of any kind of timber industry around here. No, that, that's interesting. I, I want to ask too, I guess, just about sort of the difference with shipping too, that like, I, I think you mentioned that a lot, or we've talked about this before, certainly that like a lot of mushrooms, most of the mushrooms are grown in a small area in Pennsylvania, right? That we get at like supermarkets and things. Like I, I think about, you know, beef production in, you know, the Midwest, Kansas and places like that, or corn and soy production, or just when you get to a certain scale, there seems to be a, a certain amount of problems that come with that, you know, overuse of chemicals or uh, just pollution factors. You know, when you talk about like beef and cattle and things like that or pork, are there the same concerns? Like, should I be concerned as a consumer, I guess, about supporting big mushroom? <laughs> is, the, is, that, <laughs> is that the same issue as other kind of big ag? Sure. So it's concentrated agriculture. Uh -huh. So they're trucking in all their inputs and then they have to truck out all their waste yep. from Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. So when you decentralize our food system and decentralize food production, there's a better chance of inputs and waste being part of a system. Okay. So if we're using sawdust that's sourced regionally, so you know our supplies are regional and then the our waste, our mushroom compost at the end is highly sought after by local farmers. So oh, okay. I have several local farms that pick up my waste and it's good for them. It's good yeah. for their farm. <laughs> and because it's local, you know, we're only shipping that, you know, I have somebody picking up today that'll drive 10 miles to pick up my waste and yeah. take it back to their vegetable farm where it's a tremendous input for their compost system. You know, I don't like to spend a lot of time, I don't talking negatively about big sure. ag yeah, because yeah. having grown up in the Midwest where there are a lot of really big farms, I recognize the scale of agriculture that this country needs to feed, you know, 300 million people. Yeah. I think there's a place for some bigger agricultural production. What I like to see is 
let's localize as much as we can. Okay. Because we can certainly localize more yeah. of the food that's on our plate. So let's put our energy into localizing every last bite that we can. Right. And then we will impact that bigger system. Yeah. There's a really great initiative called 50 by 60. I don't okay. know if you're familiar with this. The, I learned about it through Clark Farm. They hosted a speaker. I'm drawing a blank on his name. I think he is a researcher maybe at Brandeis. He has put together a proposal of how we could localize 50% of our diet here in New England by the year 2060. Oh, yeah. I have heard a little about this. Yeah, yeah. What, what I like about this plan is it recognizes what we can do well yep. and do easily. You know, there's no reason to ship in carrots, yep. right? We can grow carrots here. Yeah. We can grow lettuce. We can grow kale. You know, we can grow a certain amount of meat. We may not be able to grow all the meat that people want to eat, but, you know, we can think about how to localize more meat production. Sure. But they're also very realistic that we can, you know, and it depends on what kind of diet we have 30 years from now, right? If we're eating the same amount of meat or animal products, we may not be able to produce all that here in New England. Yeah. But if you start shifting the diet and thinking about what if more of our protein was plant-based, you know, how, it, you know, just making small tweaks starts to change that equation and change that system. I like the plan because it also acknowledges that we are never going to eliminate certain things from our collective diet. Like, yeah. I don't think our society is here in New England is ready to give up bananas yeah. or orange juice. You know, it may not be a product you or I consume every day, but it is, you know, there's a lot of demand for that. And yeah. And we can't, we can't grow it here. There's no, the, the climate doesn't support it. Yeah. Right. Right. So they rec the plan recognizes that there are some foods, you know, a certain point, it's just lovely to eat an orange in January, right? Sure. Like food is pleasure and we should enjoy food. And so we will continue to import food for that reason. And because we cannot produce every last calorie that we need to feed our entire population in New England. Sure. So anyway, I don't spend a lot of time, you know, talking bad about big ag, but rather focusing attention on what more can we do here? Yeah. So I like to think about the fact that here in Massachusetts, we consume about 20 million pounds of mushrooms a year. Wow. So what if we localize, you know, 1% of that, 5% of that, yeah. you know, that starts to become, that's real jobs that we can create here in Massachusetts. And we can start to gain control over a little slice of our food system. Sure. So that in the event of a pandemic or something worse, we have these businesses here feeding people. If we need to scale them up, at least we have people with that experience, the knowledge, you know, some of the infrastructure that we can then work on scaling up, which is Part of what's been happening during the pandemic, the state has been investing more money with local farms, just recognizing that we need our food system to be resilient. And yeah. one of the ways to do that is to strengthen it and to, to help it work better, you know, yeah. help with the logistics, the distribution, whatever we can do to make those systems work better, we'll strengthen our foods, you know, the local food supply. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too. I mean, you're approaching it kind of from a jobs perspective, which I think is is super important. But I also even just think about, you know, as climate change continues to be a problem, is it the smartest thing for us, as you say, you know, carrots or something that we can grow plenty of? And, you know, I'm still getting some that were harvested last fall that have been in storage <laughs> at local farms. Does it make sense to truck them in from California just right. because, you know, we might be able to do it for a dollar a pound cheaper, let's say. I, I don't even know the number, but, you know, whatever it is. But what is that added cost? that's kind of hidden in that saving. Right. There's an economy of scale that the producer sees, but just the pollution from driving a truck 3,000 miles when we have something 
you know, within five or 10 miles of us that. Right. I think until all that pollution is factored into the cost of food. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be hard to make an economic case to produce more food here, you know, to scale it up significantly. But, you know, we're going to reach a point that we can't avoid the reality of climate change. Yeah. We will be paying, you know, for that pollution. Yeah. One way or another, we're going to pay for it. Right. So if that starts to become worked into the more immediate cost of food, then I think that will help tip the scales. I think some of that is happening, um, you know, to shift the local food system. But I think like, until we have to actually pay for those emissions, yeah, associate, you know, tie the cost of the emissions to the food, I think we'll continue to ship food around the world. Yeah. I, I think there's a piece that's missing in that too, in, in that equation. Like I'm just thinking about the calculus that I have to make sometimes where, you know, I want to buy your mushrooms, but they're... $15 a pound, something like that. Right. Um, right. And I can get a two pound box at Costco for eight or nine dollars. You know, I, I don't know right. the exact price off the top of my head. There is that moment where you look at it purely on a dollars and cents standpoint and say, that one's cheaper. Therefore, that's the better purchase. And for me, it's been kind of this journey of having to reprioritize. And as we talked about, sort of realizing that, that food is medicine and that if I can buy mushrooms that, I mean, like you have the date they were harvested on the package. So I can go into a farm stand and see, okay, this one was from this morning or yesterday or, you know, like there's a freshness factor, which leads to more enjoyment for me when I'm eating it. But there's also a nutrition factor. That's not fat. Like there's, there's so much else that goes into it. Is that a hard lesson for you to get across to the general public of just like, yes, we may be more expensive, but here's here's all the other stuff that's not included in that price or the benefits that you're receiving by by buying these mushrooms. I don't spend a lot of time focusing on that and trying to persuade people to buy my mushrooms. Yeah. Because I find that everybody that tries them loves them. Yeah. Right. Like nobody dislikes my mushrooms. Right. Sometimes cost is a barrier. Yeah. And I recognize that that's part of our that's an issue in our bigger food system. Sure. I never minimize that factor. You know, if people are debating how to spend their money, right? Because everyone's making choices every day about every dollar they spend and which, which of their values is winning in that moment, right? Like, (laughs) is it the value of seeing your child happy or is it the value of, you know, feeding them the best food or, you know, making sure they have the right clothes that they need for the situation, right? Like everybody's yeah. making choices or every right day. now just the gas to get to work or you know like that's a huge right. that's changed the dynamic in the last you know three or four months too right so i i believe that the markets that we work with in general i assume people are committed to supporting local yeah recognizing that some households have financial limitations on that and that's also part of why i don't spend time or too much energy you know talking negatively about big ag because yeah. if we lived in a world where every pound of mushrooms costs $15 and every, you know, chicken, if chicken everywhere was seven to $10 a pound, like it, you know, it does, it needs to be that price for local producers. Yeah. But if that was the only option, we would have a lot more hunger in our communities. Right. And so I see that there are these much bigger societal issues related to food and affordability. And we have this, you know, it's a double-edged sword where we want food to be affordable because everyone needs to eat. We sure. want everyone to be fed, right? Like we want to live in a society where everybody can access adequate, healthy food. But if our food is cheap, then we know there are other consequences to that. 
you know, I, I recognize that everyone who goes into the farm stands, you know, there are farm stands where my mushrooms are right there next to the white button mushrooms that are half the price. Yeah. But I know folks are making their choices, you know, as best they can. And I'm guessing that a lot of folks would want to buy my mushrooms every single week. Yeah. You know, would happily eat a pound of my mushrooms every single week. Sure. Whether or not that fits into their budget, you know, that's a personal choice they're making. But I assume that everyone's doing the best they can. Yeah with their food budget um, because it's not easy. Yeah. Nobody has avoided the rise of food prices yeah. in the past two years. You know, that's a real, real thing for folks. Yeah. So fortunately there are enough people in the Boston area who both value the local organic food and can afford to pay it. Yeah. I, I never assume that the people who can't afford it don't value it. Right. Right. It just may not be within their budget at this time to put as much money into their food choices as they wish. Sure. No, I I, I get that. And I, I think that's a that's a healthy perspective. And I don't I don't mean to put all of the bigger issues of our food system just on you or other small producers. I mean, as you say, it is it is a much, much bigger issue. And, you know, we're all trying to figure out how to navigate that in our own way. Um, you mentioned organic there, and I am curious, like for a lot of small producers, getting organic certification can be a hurdle. You know, there's a cost mm-hmm. to uh, getting the right inspections and, and even just a cost to those inputs, so, you know, whether it's using organic fertilizers or soils or, you know, there's a whole regimen to that system that people need to follow. You chose to get that certification and continue right. to renew that. Like, was that an initial value like early on that you just said, like, I have to go this route? Or like, what is it about being certified organic that, that's important to you? So I don't sell my mushrooms direct. So folks are buying my mushrooms at Clark Farm, at yeah. Barrel Farm, at Wilson Farm, right? At a farmer's market, you know, where maybe Farmer Dave is retailing my mushrooms. So because I'm not there and people are not interacting with me. Yeah. I feel like that organic label helps give them reassurance that they're looking for to purchase this product. I have no illusions about the organic certification, like what it really means, what it does, you know, what it does or doesn't promise. Yeah. It is a series of hoops you have to jump through and quite a bit of the the cost of organic certified produce, it's twofold. One is the record keeping. Yeah. That's required to go with it. And in response to that, what I have found is that the record keeping required for organic certification in my mushroom production matches what I should be doing anyway as a good business owner. Yeah. You know, I should be tracking batches. I should be tracking yields. They want traceability of food. If somebody gets sick or something goes wrong, they want to know, you know, which batch was it in? Do we need to recall stuff? So that record keeping I have actually found helpful because I know that if my records are in order for the organic certification, that means my records are in order for my production. It also means my records are probably in order for my taxes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's three benefits. Yeah. 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 So I kind of take it as like, you know, just one more reason to be diligent about the record keeping in my business. So then the other part of organic certification is the cost of inputs. Okay. So a lot of organic farmers, you know, may struggle to pay the higher price of inputs or to find suitable products for pest management. Yeah. So what I have found is that within the mushroom world, the inputs are fairly easy to get organic. So that part of it isn't a problem. And with pest management, in my business, good growing practices mean you don't have pests. Well, you're indoors too, I guess, right? That helps I'm, I'm indoors. Yeah. It, it does. But the bigger problem, the bigger challenge for us is that a lot of things like to grow where it's you know, 65 and wet. Uh So we have high humidity. A lot of things like to grow where it's warm and humid. 
So we do things like keep the temperature lower, which minimizes any bacterial contamination that we may end up mm. needing to spray for. Yeah. Any other like gnats and other insects, they, the lower your temperature, the slower their incub- the longer their incubation period. So if we have a good, healthy, clean grow room, we can grow mushrooms without needing to spray chemicals to treat for any kind of insects. And certainly being indoors helps with that. So again, you know, similar to the record keeping to be organic, I find it's just employing a lot of really good production practices. Yeah. You know, there, we could certainly talk about the challenges, uh, you know, the problems with the organic label. I know, you know, you're familiar with Clark Farm and Andrew recently. <laughs> think wrote a manifesto about this. Yeah, it's kind of this other step up that they've gone into is real organic. The I see them and, and Hutchins Farm both have that logo now. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, I think the label only goes so far and yeah. if you want this is a good time to talk about the challenge of international shiitake production. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so, one of the disruptions in the mushroom industry, um, this goes back, you know, five to 10 years, is that in China, they figured out how to grow mushrooms on blocks of sawdust in a way that they're incubated in China or they're inoculated in China and in a plastic bag and loaded onto shipping containers shipped to the US. During shipping, they're fruiting and sending out their mushrooms. They arrive here. And as a mushroom farmer, I could buy a shipping container of these fruiting logs that will arrive ready to harvest. And so they are labeled as, you know, product of the U.S. when they're really only harvested in the U.S. So yes, they are harvested here, but the whole production contents of that log, everything is done in China and they're labeled organic. So it has decimated the shiitake industry here in the U.S. Most of the big producers of shiitake have shut down that part of their operation in the past 10 years. And so a little bit ironically during the pandemic, those shiitake blocks were put into shipping containers and sent on ships to the U.S. But if you remember what's happened, shipping containers are not being unloaded in a timely yeah, way. They're sitting out there in the ocean just waiting for, yeah. For the and the mushrooms workers, kept yeah. growing and were not, you know, you couldn't harvest them by the time they got here. So then we ran into this period of not enough shiitake mushrooms on the market around here. So some of that's shifting and it's coming back to the shiitake, organic shiitake that are all coming from China. So again, this is where I feel like my business has a place where folks like you, Heath, you really want to know where your food's coming from. Yeah. And, you know, it's one thing to pick it up in the store and see product of the U.S., but to actually know for sure that that mushroom is grown in the U.S., you wouldn't know unless you knew your farmer. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I feel like that's just, it's such a problem across the board right now that there, I don't know if you've ever seen the show The Good Place, but there's kind of this, the long and short of it is it's a show about the afterlife and sort of calculating like how many good deeds versus bad deeds, like where you end up. And at one point they say, okay, in 1800, a man bought roses for his mother and he got 5,000 good points for doing that. And in 2000, whatever, 18, a man bought roses for his mother and he got 5,000 good points, but 2,000 bad points because they were grown in Colombia and 2,000 because they were trucked here and not just all these negative points adding up. Right. But, you know, it's, it's difficult as a consumer to to make your way through all that. Um, I did want to touch on one last thing before we close here, and that's just sort of the focus of your farm isn't just on growing, but it is on education too and on community outreach and just I mean, I'm very connected to you on social media and sort of see what you're doing. And you've done a lot of like mushroom hikes where you just go out and point out wild mushrooms to people, which is really cool. Or 
you know, doing programming for, for kids, like at the local library, like talk to me about how you see community outreach fitting into your greater business. Cause it would be easy to just focus on, I'm a grower, I'm going to grow my thing and sell my thing. But like, why, why is it so important to be involved at a deeper level? So a couple of reasons. Part of that was born out of the pandemic, thinking I need to make my business more resilient uh-huh. so that if things shift, you know, I have different revenue streams, sure. you know, to have a healthy business. So part of that, you know, came in that way in, in terms of selling grow blocks so people could grow at home and because people had more time, yeah, you know, to do hobbies like that. So it felt like a good time to um, start that part of the business. And a number of other producers do that. I was learning from other mushroom farms just about how to diversify a little bit and certainly um, selling grow kits to let folks try this at home was certainly a good way to do that. And then the public outreach and education, it's been twofold. One, as a business owner, thinking about my brand and building awareness for Fat Moon and driving customers to be, you know, driving loyalty to our brand. Yeah. It certainly helps with that. And that's been part of my motivation with social media to really connect directly with my consumers. And I'm always hopeful that I'm sending consumers to all the great farms that I work with yeah. or all the great restaurants. Like if you're going to go out for dinner, you know, I've had customers tell me, that they keep my website handy. So when they're going out to dinner, they'll check my website to see, you know, which restaurants are really walking the walk here about buying local produce. So I love it if I can keep channeling customers to these other fantastic local independent businesses. And then another reason why I'm doing the walks and the outreach part is I enjoy talking to people about mushrooms. Yeah, I enjoy growing them. I enjoy the science of growing them. I enjoy talking to chefs and other, you know, farm owners. But I also just enjoy sharing the love of mushrooms and the the fun of fungi <laughs> with regular folks. So yeah. small and a, another piece of that was last year was so rainy. <laughs> you know, we we're getting rain a couple times a week, and there were more mushrooms than ever popping up everywhere. Yeah, we have this beautiful property here in Westford, East Boston Camps. It's a few hundred acres, and it hasn't been touched, you know, in terms of logging for fifty or eighty years. Oh wow! So it's a beautiful property a lot of old trees. So I wanted to start hiking it. So I put it out just to see if folks wanted to join me. I charged just a little bit. I just only charged 20 bucks a person to go on the walk. And then I've been able to donate all that money back to Friends of East Boston Camps. Oh, and they're cool. a nonprofit that supports that property. Yeah. So it's been a small way that I could use my business to benefit the community. The people that come love the walks. I'm happy to be able to write a check. You know, by the end of the year, we had donated $2,000 to Friends of East Boston Camps. And I just see that property as a real gem for our local community here. But I also think of it as a mushroom museum. Oh, interesting. That that we need to maintain. Yeah. It's a living museum. I have this dream of cataloging the fungi in that woods and creating a collection, which someday I'll get to it. But we must have found at least 75 different varieties of wild fungi. Wow. And the thing is, we don't know a lot about them. You know, and there were some that we couldn't identify. And I had a few folks that were there with me every week, and we'd find the same ones and be trying to identify them. So I just think of it as a preserve that, you know, we need to hold on to and keep ideal conditions for all these fungi. Because let's face it, there's probably decades of learning that you could do in that forest. And I imagine that someday our children will grow up you know, maybe in 30 years, they'll be finding, you know, a cure for a disease in a mushroom that's been growing in those woods that we aren't even thinking about, you know, we're not even close to figuring out what that might be. But I just think there's a lot of potential in those woods. So I'm committed to being an advocate for East Boston camps to keep the natural 
in that property, mostly to preserve it for the future, the enjoyment of hiking it, but also knowing the promise of future environmental solutions may be buried in some old forest. And if we don't have the capacity to figure it out this year, we need to preserve it so that by the time our children are old enough <laughs> to be working on these problems, um, we've kept kept that for them. I love that. It reminds me, like we talk so much about the rainforest and like preserving what's in Brazil and things, but like we have that here too. You know, there's we do. all these weird we do. wild species that no one knows about. But yeah, exactly. Awesome. We have gorgeous forests around here. And, you know, when you learn about carbon sequestration, yeah, it's really the older trees that do the most carbon sequestration that you, you can find graphs that show, you know, in the first, you know, 20 years, it's not a lot, but it's really when the trees get to be 50, 100, 200 years old that they're really sequestering tremendous amounts of carbon. And so I have thought about this a lot, that one of our obligations, you know, you and I, we have an obligation to start planting the old growth forest of next century, right? Yeah. Like somebody's got to plant those trees. And even if they're not going to do, you know, sequester a lot of carbon for the next 20 years, you know, in 50 years, they will be, but we got to get that started. <laughs> it's on my to-do list with, you know, a <laughs> bunch of other projects, but I, I do feel strongly that, um, one of these days, I'll be throwing myself into planting more trees. All right, Elizabeth Almeida there. Wow. That was, uh, was spiritual at the end. I love that. <laughs> Just thinking about all the things that we don't know that might be in the forests in our own backyard. I mentioned at the beginning, but you know, my wife and I have been on this journey to eating more locally and finding great local producers. And my wife at one point, was thinking back on some of the vacations we'd taken, going to places like the Cotswolds in England or Tuscany in Italy, just kind of famous food regions that had these beautiful farms, or even just, you know, going out to California or something and tasting a fresh avocado on the on the side of your salad there or whatever it is, or, you know, guacamole. And she and I had always longed to live somewhere where we had access to that amazing fresh food and food that grounds you in a sense of place. And the more that we've done our homework and found great local producers like Elizabeth and others, the more we've realized that here in, in Massachusetts where we live, we do have that. And frankly, wherever you live, you have that. It might be hidden. It might be a little harder to find. It might take some homework. But what you'll find is that one little thing will uncover another, will uncover another, and soon you'll build a whole network of local farms, local producers, and you'll be able to get a lot of your stuff right from there. I still go to the grocery store. I buy things that I can't get, some packaged foods and spices and oils and things like that. I get at the grocery store. But my meat, my eggs, my dairy, and of course my fruits and vegetables almost exclusively come from local farms at this point. With a handful of exceptions, like Elizabeth mentioned, there are some things that are not suited to our climate that get imported. But uh, there's a lot of good stuff happening too. Go look for your local farmer. Go see what they're up to. If you want to learn more about Elizabeth and her farming operations, check out Fat Moon Mushrooms on social media, fatmoonmushrooms.com. She does sell grow kits that she will ship anywhere in the country if you want to try growing your own mushrooms. I've done it twice now. It's a great project to do with kids. And as I said at the beginning, I wasn't sure where this interview was going to go, if it was going to be worth my time, if it was going to be worth Elizabeth's time. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. Please let me know. Tag me on social media. I'm at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. But I'm curious to know, did you like a show like this? Would you want another one? 
Should I talk to more food people or more life people? I don't know. I'm figuring it out. My newsletter comes out every Sunday. Go to HeathRosella.com and enter your email address and you will get that right in your inbox. I will talk to you in two weeks on the podcast. Until then, be safe.